Welcome to Leading the Next Generation with Tim Elmore. I am your co-host, Andrew McPeak, and our mission here at Growing Leaders is to empower the emerging generations with skills to lead in real life. And Tim, today we got a little bit of a mystery subject. We're calling this Overcoming the Most Common Mistake Educators Make When We Lead Generation Z. That's kind of a leading uh, statement, isn't it? It kind of makes you want to go, what in the world is that? Yes, it is. But it is. I'm so convinced this is a mistake that I have made as an educator, leader, and dad with the next generation. Um, it's one we often default to out of empathy, and that's a good thing, that empathy is a good thing. But boy, it's happening too many times. And unfortunately, the victim is the Gen Z young person who doesn't receive the best leadership they deserve. Mm, that is so true. That is so true. Well, let's jump in. Okay. So I believe, Andrew, that often the biggest mistake we make, if I were to give just a couple of words to it, is um, problem blindness. Dan Heath talks about this in a number of his writings, but problem blindness is where you just assume, well, that's just kids today, you know, kids today, you know, this is just the way it is. It's the way it's always going to be. Um, we assume kids are a certain way and there's no way around it. Um, Andrew, you and I have talked before about the parable of the upstream um, fishermen. Uh, yeah, yeah. You remember the story where two guys are fishing in a river and suddenly they look off to the left and here is a young child drowning in the water, floating down this river and screaming for help. Well, both of them throw their fishing poles down and hop in the water and grab this child and lift him up. And, and just as they do that, though, they hear a noise. They look upstream. Here's another child coming down. So one of the guys that's holding the first toddler is handing him off and then going up to get the other one. Now, both of them are being held by these men, but they hear a noise. They look up screen. Here comes another and then another and then another. I mean, this is quite overwhelming. So the one guy hands all the kids that they've got to his buddy and just gets out of the water. Well, the friend that's still in the water says, hey, where are you going? I need help. Yeah. And the guy says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy that keeps throwing these kids in the water. And again, <laughs> it's just a fictional story. But what we need to do is start tackling the guy that's throwing the kids in the water. We need to get to the root of the problem and say, where have we failed to see what the real issue is? Instead of just um, serving up the symptoms or, uh, you know, um, addressing the symptoms, we actually do the, the heart of the problem. And that's the story we want to talk about today. And, and that's the steps we're going to learn today. Yeah, this is such a crucial conversation to have, especially in a year like the one we've been having, right? Where it feels like everybody's just trying to keep their head above water, right? To use that, that same stream metaphor. We're yeah. just trying to keep our head above water. We're just trying to survive. And oftentimes we don't take the time to ask what's the deeper uh, you know, root of the problem here? And how can we begin to solve some of these problems before they become even bigger problems? Exactly. And quite frankly, I've said this before, Andrew, but the, the biggest problem we have in that is that we tend to be really good at reacting to problems, not so good at preventing problems. In other words, reacting to problems really just requires our emotions. We react to September 11, 2001 by giving blood and donating our time. And, you know, that's awesome. We react to Hurricane Katrina. We react to the earthquake in Haiti. We're awfully good at that as Americans. But what I'd like to challenge us to do is really get good at preventing them if we can. And, and hence lies the, 
the case study of our of our podcast today. It's so good. It's so good. Well, I know kind of the way we want to set this up really is to tell a bit of a longer story. But the reason we're telling this story is because it is such a perfect example of why this is such a crucial conversation we need to be having. So do you want to lead us in that? Absolutely. So about a decade ago, listeners, uh, Christopher Havens was a young man who was sure he hit rock bottom. Um, that year, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison for murder. It was a manslaughter charge, and it was a no-no for sure. But he realized, oh my gosh, for the next 25 years of my life, I'm going to be cooped up. I'm going to emerge well past midlife, etc. But soon after he got to the Washington State Penitentiary, he was involved in a fight that earned him <laughs> solitary confinement. So now his problem just got worse. Well, when he arrived at the facility, he assumed that fitting in was his best chance at survival. Uh, and when he, when he was tossed into solitary confinement, he suddenly realized there's no one to fit in with right now. And the best thing he can do is, is fit in with himself. He wow. had to somehow find a way to stand out by figuring out who he was. Yeah. So that's a key line. We'll get back to that later. So Chris began working, ironically uh, to me, on math problems. He was just sitting alone. And uh, he just started working on math problems. Now, the reason this is ironic is Chris Havens was a high school dropout. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's not the kind of guy you'd be thinking that would be working on academics, you know, where you probably, I don't know, watching TV or whatever. But um, he has a good mind. And when he was in school, he knew he was pretty good at tough problems. So since he had, uh, he had limited computer access, he did all of his work by hand. So if you were walking into that wow. room he was in, Paper was everywhere, writing out, you know, longhand these math equations, theorems. Uh, yeah, they just stretched out forever. Um, and then, uh, Andrew, he eventually sent some of his solutions to these math problems to Italy, to a university, the University of Turin in Italy, showing that his solution uh, was, uh, a, 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 he had solved a previously unsolved math problem. Wow. So that, that work he's doing in the prison is paying off, basically. That's exactly right. No one had done this before in their busy, hectic schedules. So, well, the University of Turin loved it. In January 2020, his work was published in an academic journal, Research in Number Theory. That was the name of the journal. And since that time, he's been published in other places. So Chris Haven's story is, is, is crazy, for sure, and very unpredictable. But, but it's true. Um, as a young guy, he wondered, since his crime had made the world worse for his being there, maybe he could improve the world and the inmates he lived with by solving tough problems and teaching others to do so well. So now, Chris Haven, still in prison, has something called Pi Day. So Pi is that math term we learned yep. way back in the day. Each year, where inmates get together to work on difficult math equations and solve them. And of course, you and I both know they got nothing but time. Wow. So they're... They're solving big, big problems. It's so, amazing. Yeah, it's amazing to me because that's not, if you were to tell a story that started with man commits murder, goes to prison for 25 years, this is not the way you would have expected that story to end. No. In fact, you probably would guess it gotten worse, you know, yeah. not, not anything against prison, but, you know, rehabilitation doesn't always happen for sure. So, Andrew, Chris Haven's story illustrates a solution to the most common mistake we make working with Generation Z. And listeners, that would be the youngest population of kids that we're measuring today. Our problem is 
we see students high levels of stress these days and anxiety and depression and panic attacks. And we assume we just need to make their day easier. I mean, Andrew, you could see this, this uh, parent slash teacher that's doing this hybrid thing with Zoom classes and so forth, yep. just sees her kids getting stressed out. And they're thinking, oh, I need to reduce the stress by relieving some of that, you know, tough, difficult assignment they're working on and make it better that way. After all, they're stressed out. Yeah. Uh, so Andrew, you and I both have seen this. Parents will often finish their kids' homework assignments. They will. Uh, teachers will often lighten their load, thinking the subject is maybe too hard. Uh, coaches will often excuse bad behavior, assuming, well, these young athletes are under pressure. Uh, employers will um, sometimes relieve their stressed out young staff or responsibilities at work. And I'm just saying, this is a reaction. This is trying to hold the kid up in the river that's drowning. And all we're doing is now just surviving. We're not going upstream and saying, wait a minute, let's find the guy that's tackling these kids that are being thrown into the water. And I think removing the stressors, while in many, while in some cases might be right, I think it's not the actual solution. That's treating symptoms. It's not getting to the root of the problem. Absolutely. So if you're, I mean, like you said, you know, there are probably cases where this certainly needs to happen. Yeah. We do need to remove the stressor, but I don't think we spend enough time asking the question, where did the stressor come from? Why is it happening? Right. Uh, we just assume, you know, maybe they've got more things going on than before. And you and I've done that research. We know yeah. they've got a lot of things going yeah. on, but I think what we're really asking people to do is to ask the deeper question, right? To ask why a few times and dig down really deep and see if we can't get to what's the upstream problem that's really going on here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess my greatest concern is when we just react and try to reduce, reduce the stressor, it can backfire. Um, it actually creates the mindset in us and in our student that the answer in life is to reduce the problem not rise to the occasion. I love that. I realize it may be a balance between the two, but listeners, can I just say that again? It often creates a mindset in us and our young people, our students, that the answer in life is to just reduce the problem or maybe eliminate the problem rather than challenge them to rise to the occasion. Uh, we aren't teaching students about stress management. We're teaching them about stress avoidance. And Andrew, you and I have come to believe young people are resilient naturally. Um, I know this is cliche, but you watch a toddler who's learning to walk and they finally get on their feet and they fall down immediately within seconds. But what do they do? Get back up. Now they have a bruise on their left knee, but they get back up and then they fall down yep. again and they get back up and they fall down again. But nothing stops that kid because they're so determined they want to walk. It's us who rush in and say, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry you fell down. Let me carry you. And I'm not saying we do that all the time, but that's a picture of what we do to a teen or a uh, a middle school, high school, or college student, rather than saying, now, wait a minute, maybe he's learning to walk, or maybe she's learning to walk. So. Absolutely. It kind of gets back to that real, the realization that about how we're defining the kids that we're leading, right? Yeah. If we have the illusion, and it is truly an illusion, that they are weak, or that they are, they can't handle the situation that we're in, we tend to, uh, overreact, right? We step in maybe when we don't need to, all those kinds of things. So part of this is just a mindset shift. We need to look at the students in our classrooms differently and see them as resilient young people who are still learning and growing and all those things rather than maybe, um, you know, underdeveloped young people who need rescuing and saving all the time. 
Yeah. So a meta-analysis of the data on kids' emotional and social growth over the last, well, since I was a kid. So that's, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, kids have indeed uh, shown less grit. There's no doubt about it. In fact, compared to the Great Depression kids back in the 30s, way less. If, if you look at the numbers, that's just that's just a fact. But I actually believe kids innately are agile, not fragile. We condition them to be fragile as we assume that's the case, as we expect that and nothing more than that. So again, it goes back to some expectations on our part, um, the way we lead them, the way we believe in them. So I want you to think, listeners, they're agile, not fragile. I need to treat them as such. I love that. I love yeah. That. So bottom line, here's the, let's go back to the case study of Chris Havens. Chris Havens didn't need less pressure. You might have thought, well, man, he's in for murder, then solitary confinement. Let's just keep him away from anything and anything else. And he actually needed a challenge to capture his imagination. Sitting in solitary confinement, what he needed was something to give his mind to that was different than himself, than just to be preoccupied with woe is me, you know, this sort of thing. So he needed a high stakes problem to solve. Uh, He didn't need a parent or a warden or prison guard or a teacher to do it for him just a little encouragement and belief. So let me tell you, let me go on with the story. What happened was there were teachers roaming the hallways in this Washington state penitentiary. One was Mr. G. Mr. G would walk by Chris Haven's cell and slip an envelope under the door. And you know what was in that envelope? Tough math problems that needed solving. So week after week, Chris would would start solving the problems. They took a little while at first, but he got better and better and better. Well, eventually, Andrew, Mr. G slipped him a note that simply said, Mr. Havens, you have surpassed all my abilities to teach you anymore. Good luck. (laughs) He passed his teacher up. So now that is what I love. When when the student begins to stand on the shoulders of that teacher and, and because the teacher kept giving him hard stuff, hard stuff, hard stuff, and didn't say, sorry, this is hard. Are you okay? Yeah. It was, it was, I believe you can do this and you've got time now. So yeah. I love the idea that the goal of a teacher is to sort of work themselves out of a job, right? Mm-hmm. To bring wow. this kid up to a level such that they don't need me anymore. They're going to go out into the world with all of this knowledge they've gained and, yeah. and change the world. I love that, that mentality. So every teacher or just about every teacher, just about every parent that I know, just about every coach that I know agrees with the premise that we're giving. They would go, I know that's right. I, I probably am too easy on them. I'm probably too this or too that. But let me, um, let me get, um, get into some very sobering uh, information here. When we assume that young people need us to remove their hardship, we actually make life harder. And we'll say that again. When we think we need to remove the hardship, we actually make life harder. It sends the wrong message to the kid. You're unable to do this yourself. You need help. Uh, it leaves them unready for life as an adult. You will continue to lack autonomy as you turn 18 and 21. And then it entrenches the wrong assumptions. You're inadequate and must be guarded. Now, as young people, they do need an element of guard. The younger the child, the more guarding they need by parents and teachers. But as they get older, we begin to remove the style of leadership we did, we had when they were younger, and we begin to say, you can do this. So consider the assumption that a stressed out kid needs us to remove the stressors and compare it to a fitness center, okay? So let's walk into an imaginary fitness center. 
If you're working out in a gym, attempting to grow stronger, your biceps and triceps and so forth, you know you'll need to slowly but surely lift heavier weights. You don't need someone to run over and say, I'm so sorry you're sweating. Let me just take 25 pounds off this barbell. You don't see that because the trainer knows no pain, no gain. Um, nobody says, well, bless your heart in that, in that fitness center. Um, Rashad is on our team. He's a former Division One football player. His strength and conditioning coach didn't say, well, bless your heart. Let's just make that weight a little easier. I bet Rashad could give a 30-minute testimony to that wasn't my answer. You know, So I'm just saying, what if life was seen as one gigantic social, emotional, intellectual fitness center? where we see our kids are getting stronger with each year. And maybe this pandemic was the ultimate workout, mm. the ultimate workout. That's so good. Anyway, I, it feels to me like I, I just had the thought as we're talking about this, that the phrase, you can't do this by yourself is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. The more we tell them that this is a true statement, the more they will believe it. And then they won't be able to do anything without an adult present, right? Yeah. Uh, so we've got to be really careful about these messages that we're sending because you are exactly right about this metaphor. Andrew, I remember as a teenager uh, living in San Diego, California, and um, I know I probably told this story years ago, but I think it fits right here. I was riding my bike to and from school, and San Diego is a very, well, California is a very hilly, mountainy sort of place with a really large pool on the West Coast. But um, I was riding my bike down Swallow Drive, and it was called Swallow Drive because you swallowed hard as you rode down that hill. It was a really steep hill. Well, I'm riding my bike down this hill and there was a skateboarder going back and forth, back and forth. Well, I saw, I saw him right off to the left. So I quickly steered my bike to the right to stay out of his way. And I start going down this hill and I'm not going slow. When all of a sudden this skateboarder just didn't realize I was there, cuts back over my way suddenly realized I'm going to bash right into a skateboard. So he hops off. He's safe, but I hit a skateboard and I went head over heels in front of my 10 speed bike. I just roll on the pavement. I am now hurting. I am bleeding. My head's been hit. My, my, um, this is a little bit gross. So, uh, warning, warning, uh, my side, my rib cage and side was hurt. My muscle was coming out of my skin and it was just awful. Well, I got up trying to look tough, you know, a skateboarder. I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I walked my bike all the way back down because I was hurting. When I got home, I got a clinic in good leadership. My mom and my sister was there and my sister immediately panicked over what she saw. My head, my rib, it was, it was just awful. And Lisa started, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, OMG, oh my G, you know. And mom saw Lisa panicking and she saw the potential for panic in her teenage son. And mom went, Tim, let's go, let's go over to the family room. You know, so we went to a family. She's very poised. I laid down. She looked at my cuts and bleeding and she wiped them off. But I noticed she deliberately said, Lisa, Tim's going to make it. He's going to be just fine. She was talking to her, but I was listening in. And I suddenly got the feeling. And by the way, this wasn't syrupy or artificial. She knew I was going to make it. But what would make it worse is if she panicked and thought, oh, bless his heart. He may die. You know, that sort of thing. I now look back on that episode and I think, I think my healing was accelerated, not just physically, but in every other way 
by the attitude my mom planted in me. And I think that's what we've got to find a way to do in every category of Gen Z's life. It's not that we lack empathy. My mom treated my wounds. She cared for me. She told me she loved me. But along the way, the message was communicated, you're going to make it. You're, you're, you're up to this. You're, you're going to come through, you know, that sort of thing along the way. I'm sure you've seen this too, but um, it just was what I needed in that moment. Absolutely. I love that story because you're exactly right. It's, there are moments like that where we communicate volumes way more maybe than we might have uh, planned on saying. And, and I'm sure that people listening to this are wondering, okay, this all sounds good, right? But when I encounter that student who is stressed out and overwhelmed, they've had, like in the case of your story, an actually serious thing happened to them. Uh, how do I lead them well without taking the stressor away? And so I know you've got, you like to give us practical ideas. I know you've got a few for us. Talk to us about how do we do that really well? How do we lead them, lead stressed out, overwhelmed kids really well without making the mistake of solving the problem for them? Good, good. Well, um, let me um, offer about a half a dozen real quick doable steps that I think can be practiced by anybody listening. Number one, um, the first thing I would do is intuitive maybe for you, but let me just say it uh, for the record. I think sometimes when they're overwhelmed or anxious about something in front of them, we need to break down their projects into bite-sized chunks. I've mentioned this before. So sometimes when someone's overwhelmed, they're overwhelmed because they're seeing this in gigantic science project or this chore that's in front of them. And they think, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through it. They're flooding. This is a psychological, they're flooded in their mind about the project. But if we will cut up their food into bites, just like we did when we were little kids, we, we break down the project into bite-sized chunks. What can you do this morning? What can you do this afternoon, et cetera? Uh, this makes a big task seem doable. Uh, to keep from getting overwhelmed, we should suggest incremental change, not fundamental change. So that's step one. I love that. I love that. It makes it a lot easier for their brain to process it. Yeah. And then they're able to actually handle the situation themselves. I'm not solving it for them. Instead, I'm going, quit thinking about the whole semester yeah. and let's think about this week, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. When I hear great uh, Division One NCAA coaches, they always say, we're taking it one game at a time. Sure, we have our eye on the championship. Yeah. We're taking it one next Saturday's game. That's what we're looking at. You know, that's breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. Absolutely. Okay. Number two, encourage them to practice psychological distancing. This is something we talk about in the pandemic population book, Andrew, but psychological distancing is taking advantage of a teenager's mindset. Uh, have you noticed teenagers tend to know everything? I, I say this tongue in cheek. I've heard that before. They, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. In fact, didn't we know everything when we were teenagers, Andrew? So um, most young adults know the right thing to do. When you see them getting flooded or maybe feeling anxious or whatever, don't talk about their anxiety, but go up to them and just say, hey, can I ask you a question? If, you, if your best friend was really struggling with feeling you know, anxious right now, what advice would you give them? Well, they all have good advice. They've made a YouTube video on that good advice they have. So I'm just saying, let them share it and then say, now I want you to march into the bathroom, look in the mirror and offer that advice to yourself. Um, I'm, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but I, I actually like that advice. We all, usually the problem is not ignorance. It's just, we don't implement what we know to do. And this one just confirms you need to do what you know to do. 
uh, you know, create margin for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. That's psychological distancing. I love that. I love that. And it's putting the impetus on them and the ownership on them to say, not only can you do it, but you probably also know what you need to be doing in the first place. That's exactly right. Yep. Number three, help them set a goal and then hold them accountable. So not everybody is wired the same as a human being, but most human beings get energized by a target to hit, some goal to reach. So what if you um, came up with a goal together? That's why I say help them set a goal, but it's got to be theirs, not just you imposing yours. But um, then you help them perform better when uh, they're watched and affirmed. Uh, I have believed forever that people do better when they're watched. And I don't mean that in a judgmental sort of way, but it's just a friendly accountability uh, that, you know, someone's keeping their eye on me. Um, Andrew, I think I've shared with you before when, when I was on my high school track team, we were all running, you know, um, we, I was a distance runner. So we'd be running, you know, long distance. We always looked better. The form was better. The speed was better when we ran in front of the cheerleaders. Yes, we did. And the reason we did is because we were being watched. At least we thought we were being watched. That was probably a figment of our imagination. But the point is, it's just a picture. Whenever someone's observing, we tend to do better. Most wins require an outside set of eyes and ears and words of support. Uh, They work like guardrails, keeping you on the path. And so I think a healthy goal that you hold them accountable to is just going to help. Yep. I think that it works. It works wonders, especially for a teenager. Yeah. So number four is... Um, This is something I keep hammering over and over and over. I want all of you that are listening to consider finding a way to practice this one. Communicate both high expectations and high belief. Now, I'll make this brief, but research from 1968, Dr. Robert Rosenthal and his team showed us the power of students with a teacher who has high expectations. Meaning a student is ten, tends to perform better, not 4.0 all the time, but they're going to perform better when they have an instructor in front of them that expects a lot out of them. After 1968, we began to discover the downside of high expectation. And there is a downside. Sometimes our expectations can, can be perceived by the student as too high. It's that kid that just spirals downward when he just wants to give up and throw in the towel. And, you know, my teacher expects too much. My mom demands too much. Or I have a tiger mom, you know, that's got me playing violin and she won't let me have dinner until I master the violin. All those things can just cause um, a, a, a student to just kind of get paralyzed emotionally. That's where high belief comes in. So high belief uh, basically communicates, not only do I expect a lot, I actually know you and I am sure that you can do this. So this is research that came from a team of researchers from Ivy League schools in the 1990s. They discovered when a teacher steps up front, has high expectation, but but then says, I'm giving you this feedback because I have high expectations and I know you can reach them. Now, this is key. I'll stop there and you may want to volley back, Andrew, but I just feel like this now speaks to not only the head, but the heart as well. She or he believes in me. I can pull this off. I don't know if I do, but they do, and I admire them. Um, 
Anything you'd volley back on that particular? Well, I would just say that I love that. I love that mentality. I always call this sort of the secret recipe for motivating uh, young people, especially Generation Z. It's if we have that high belief without that high expectations, it feels sugary and syrupy and like your grandmother saying, oh, honey, you can do whatever you put your mind to. But if you have high expectations without high belief, it communicates overwhelmed. I'm, I'm angry at you. I'm disappointed in you. It's really high, both high belief, high expectations becomes that magic recipe that gets exactly what you want in terms of performance and accomplishment out of them. Yeah, it is. So high expectations are about the demands they feel, but high belief is the support they feel. And I think both are necessary. Like you just said, high demand, high support. This is what brings a Christopher Havens to his peak in the Washington State Penitentiary when he's not just an inmate waiting and doing time. He's solving problems and sent him off to an academic journal and getting published because he had nothing but time to solve problems. I, I love it. All right. Number five, the fifth doable step, I think, is tell stories of other kids who struggle with stressors and overcame them. So often, a personal vision is birthed from hearing stories of peers who overcame tough spots and succeeded. Um, One of the books I've enjoyed over the years is a book called Cradles of Eminence. Cradles of Eminence. Uh, And it's the study, it's actually a series of studies on the childhoods of over 700 famous men and women. And over 90% of these 700 famous men and women overcame hardship. It's an FDR who overcame polio. It's a, you, you know, it's just men and women, all different countries, backgrounds. This book will charge you up. And it's just a, it's just a, a series of stories of success. This is the kind of thing that paints a picture in the mind of a, of a young person. I can do this too. Absolutely. And this is why, you know, we, we tell a lot of stories at Growing Leaders and uh, perhaps some people around us might go, well, that's not very academic of you. But the problem is we're not always thinking about academics. We're thinking about motivation. We're thinking about success. We're thinking about pushing students to become their best. And the reality is we as human beings, we need those stories to create a picture for us of what it looks like to push harder to succeed, to overcome challenges, all of those things. It's almost like when we hear somebody else has done it, we begin to believe we can do it too. No doubt. Which leads me to number six, our final idea. Um, I think we should consider offering the students challenges that are very important and almost impossible. Offer challenges that are very important and almost impossible. With a little belief, young people naturally want to participate in projects that just seem like this is meaningful, this actually matters, and some people believe we can't do it, which might be the very thing that makes them, you know, tr- you know let's rush into this, let's, let's do it. So I think uh, kids need higher stakes. Sometimes I think we give them multiple choice tests when maybe, maybe, maybe what they really need is a real challenge that they get up and go outside and do something for the community. And then math or history or whatever is a part of that learning. Um, But I I just believe this is it. I think we bring out the best when we give them something that's very important and almost impossible. And Chris Havens Havens is a great illustration. I'll wrap up with this, Andrew, that I'd love for you to tell a story. Um, If Hollywood were to produce a script on Chris Havens' story, it would be pretty far-fetched. You'd probably look at this and go, "That, that couldn't really happen. But it did happen. But it was because of a teacher, Mr. G., And a mindset that Chris Havens went through himself saying, 
My goal isn't to fit in. It's to stand out. You know, it's to be find out what's inside of me and, and pursue it. And he made the very most of the prison time he's had so far. Who knows? He may come out of prison and teach math. You know, who knows? So this is our challenge to avoid that mistake of assuming we just need to relieve the stressors in our kids' lives and say, maybe what they need is just a little bit of demand, a little bit of support and a belief that they can get through that stressor after all. Love that. I love that. Well, I, if you don't mind, Tim, one of the ways I wanted to close was with uh, uh, something that I came across that just truly blew me away. Uh, a few months ago, the New York Times published a letter and it was a yeah. special letter because it was one that was written by a, a young 12-year-old girl named Audrey. But the, the other special thing about this letter is that the, the letter she wrote was not to her grandma, who she hadn't seen in months. It was not to, you know, a friend who, who she couldn't hang out with during the 2020, you know, COVID season that we were in. Instead, it was a letter that she was writing to herself, her future self. Interesting. Yeah. And it's a powerful example of just how much resilience and wisdom and intelligence and kindness and insight is, that is inside of these kids, right? Um, and I think this young girl captured exactly what she needed to capture from this season, which is realize, look at the world around you and realize what, what the, the really good things are that you have. Um, and if you don't mind, I want to read this. So the New York yeah. Times published this. She wrote it towards the end of 2020, uh, but it's just a really powerful example of what this could look like. So let me read this. Dear Audrey, she says, you're much older now and hopefully wiser, although sometimes that's not the case. You've probably forgotten about me. I'm 12-year-old you, struggling with anxiety, hating virtual learning. In this nightmarish pandemic, I could go on and on. Ring a bell? Anyway, maybe time machines exist in the time where you are, but they don't here. So I'm doing the next best thing. I'm writing you a letter that I hope you read every year on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. I've come from 2020 to remind you not to forget. I'm sitting on my bed right now, tears still on my face from a fight with my mom. And aware of the light blue masks hanging on the hooks next to the door in my kitchen. In a way, it still feels like March when this whole crazy thing started. I'm sick of it. I'm begging you to remember, I didn't get to spend Thanksgiving with my beloved grandparents when I'd been waiting so long to act normally with them. I'm struggling and would do anything to get out of 2020 and this pandemic to see my friends and family normally. You are able to do that. You have what I want so badly, so please, I urge you, to enjoy your life, your friends, your family, your experiences. Remember, everything is replaceable and unimportant, but people are the only true thing that matter in this modern day world. Love your life and be filled with joy this year. Sincerely you, age 12, Audrey in 2020. <laughs> I love it. What perspective from a sixth grader? That's just crazy cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just such a reminder of me. Like when I spend any time with a sixth grader, it's easy to think what a kid, you know, such a child. And yet when we actually spend time and give these kids a chance, right. Practice some of the things that you were suggesting to us, what we'll do readily, I think is be surprised at what they're capable of, of what they can see of the perspective that they can gain. If they just get the chance to face these challenges and ask the question, what can I learn from this and how can I improve? And I think that's the heart and mind uh, and what's on their minds for so many young people out there today. It is. 
Excellent. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your wisdom for us today. Thank you guys for listening. And if you're looking for ways to dig a little bit deeper, we've really only scratched the surface of this and so many of the conversations that we started. Uh, Tim wrote a book back in August of 2020 called The Pandemic Population. And in that book, we talked in depth about a lot of the topics that we were discussing today. So if you're one of those people who wants to just dig a little deeper, I would really suggest picking up a copy of that book. You can go on over to Pandemic Population. Dot com or go to growingleaders.com. You can find it there. But that book is just a really great resource for anybody who's asking, how do I lead these kids through a really tough season in a way that they can actually emerge on the other side um, and, and be even better? In fact, he's got eight practical ideas that are, are right inside of that book. And so I really encourage you to pick that up, pandemicpopulation.com. And as always, if you would rate this podcast, give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, that helps get the word out about what we're doing here. If you found this podcast helpful, uh, I encourage you to share with a friend, send it to somebody who you think may benefit. If you want to connect with us online, we're at Growing Leaders and at Tim Elmore, pretty much everywhere you are. And then finally, if you've got ideas for this podcast, people you want us to interview, topics we should discuss, shoot us an email. It's podcast at growingleaders.com. Well, Tim, once again, thank you so much for your insight and wisdom today. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.